0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we look to explore the notion of the university and its members as community servant. The implications of duty, civics, and privilege on a college campus. Our guest today is Boston University Assistant Professor Scott Sider, an expert in the field of civic development in adolescence and emerging adults. Welcome to the EdCast, Dr. Cider. Thank you very much. Across the country, it's fairly well known that colleges and universities participate in various community service efforts, both locally and in high-need areas. In your research, you seem to want to answer the question, why?
1: I'm very, I'm very interested in how teenagers and emerging adults think about their responsibilities to other people. Um, one, of, one of our most famous philosophers, Peter Singer, who teaches at Princeton University, sometimes refers to an individual's circle of obligation. In other words, to whom does a given individual feel a responsibility for? Do they feel a responsibility to family, to family and friends, to family, friends, to family, to friends and fellow citizens? And and in general, I feel like this world would be a better place if we could expand people's circles of obligation. In other words, to increase the number of people that that an individual feels responsible for. And my research explores what kind of educational interventions um, help help teenagers and emerging adults to expand their circles of obligation.
0: In 2008, you published a paper called Resisting Obligation. It starts with a quote from President Obama. If there's a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, That matters to me, even if it's not my child. If these are senior citizens somewhere who can't pay for her prescription and has to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer, even if it's not my grandmother. It's essentially revisiting Dr. King's notion of the inescapable web of mutuality. What were your findings in this paper?
1: Well, I started with that quotation by President Obama because that was that was part of his stump speech. You know, so he was traveling across the country for, for nearly two years repeating that speech over and over and over again. And and clearly, you know, his ideas, you know, by virtue of the election seemed to resonate with, with the American people. And yet, uh, when I did this, I did this study in 2008 of affluent suburban high school students, uh, and I asked them some questions about how they thought about their responsibilities to other people. And specifically I asked them about their responsibilities to to men and women in the developing world, uh, struggling with hunger um, and disease. And I asked them what what feelings of obligation do you have or do you not feel that you have towards the well-being of those folks? W- and
0: what were your findings?
1: To a startling degree, these teenagers characterized characterized themselves as responsible only to family and close friends. Clearly, clearly there was some variation you know, across across you know this, this, this sample of teenagers. But by and large, they, f- they felt like it would be a good deed for them to, to, to take steps to help out folks who are struggling in other parts of the world. But they rejected the idea that they, they had any moral obligation for the well-being of those people.
0: What role does privilege play in this development of one's philosophy of service?
1: That's a great question. In the United States, I would argue that one of the most powerful memes is a belief in the American dream, which is a belief that everyone has an opportunity to achieve economic success, um, and that as a result of that belief, that economic in- inequality is due to differences in talent or intelligence or perseverance, and and privileged youth tend to believe in the American dream very very strongly. There is a um, there's a psychologist, Melvin Lerner, who has what he calls just world theory. Uh, which, which makes the argument that we as, we as human beings, all human beings, have a, have a desire to perceive the world around us as, as just. And, and so for privileged youth who are, who are living atop the socioeconomic you know, hierarchy, they have an enormous, on average, they have an enormous investment in seeing their family status, their status and their family status as earned. And, and so it's not particularly challenging to convince privileged youth to engage in community service. But to then ask them to, to go a step further and think about the root why why it is that that their work is necessary in a soup kitchen, why it is that a homeless shelter exists, why it is that that some schools receive less funding than other schools that that's the challenging jump with privileged youth because they 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 certainly they are cer- they are certainly willing to um, to do what they perceive to be a good deed but but to, to push them to think about ways in which this community service comes about as a result of inequity or injustice—that's the, that's the challenging jump with privileged youth.
0: Have you looked at the underprivileged and uh, their perception of the American dream or obligation to service?
1: That's a—that's a great question. Um, and in fact, some the research that I'm planning to, to to embark on in this coming year really focuses on on urban urban students in um in low income publics in, you know, in low income public schools. Um, in general, I would say that the existing research suggests that that uh, s- students from low-income backgrounds, at least students from low-income backgrounds who who, who are continuing to go to school, also express express a deep belief in the American dream. You know, for for a slightly different reason, in the sense that if you're if you're at the top of the, the socioeconomic class hierarchy, you have, some, you have some incentive to see your place as earned, but if you're at a lower level on the socioeconomic class hierarchy, you have some motivation to see, to see mobility as a possibility, to, to sort of see an opportunity for you to, to make a move upwards. Right. And, and so you also see low-income students expressing a deep belief in, in, in the American dream.
0: I look forward to reading that research uh, at the end of this year. And you've looked at both high school and college-age students does anything change once a student has gone away to college and been exposed to maybe a more heterogeneous population, urban environment, or different socioeconomic background?
1: Absolutely. Um, one of the classic developmental psychologists, Eric Erickson, wrote about what he calls the identity crisis happening during adolescence. Which is, and the identity crisis, according to Erikson, is uh, is this idea that in adolescence, individuals are reaching out for also reaching out beyond. Um, the the, the worldview espoused by their families and friends and, and sort of close close peers and looking for alternative ways of understanding the world and so according to Erickson who was writing in the 1960s that took place in in in, in, in the teenage years but but more recently a number of developmental psychologists have made the argument that that in the 21st century um, at least 21st century in the United States that that period of identity exploration has really been pushed back into what Folks refer to as emerging adulthood, which is which is the period of approximately 18 to 25 years old, which is the period that that encompasses the college years. And so so I think there's a lot of evidence now to suggest that that that, that experience of kind of reaching out for new ways of understanding the world is happening during the college years. And in fact, um, there's definitely some research by a number of folks um, that's found. That college student, that college students demonstrate surges in their belief about the importance of helping others. That young adults in college develop a deeper awareness and concern for political issues. Um, there's one really interesting study that found that one of the best predictors of a student's shifts in political orientation during college was the the level of activism in that college campus. And so, so I think that college campuses really do have the the potential to serve as cauldrons for, for 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 students thinking about the world around them and their responsibilities within the world around.
0: Them. Speaking of college campuses, you recently published a book called Shelter Where Harvard Meets the Homeless. What's so special about this particular shelter?
1: So there are, you know there are, there are clearly a number of homeless shelters in the United States and clearly a number of homeless shelters that that involve college students in, in volunteerism. But what's interesting about the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter is that it was started 26 years ago by by a graduate student at, at Harvard University, and for the past 26 years has been managed and operated entirely by college students. And so as as best I can tell from my research, it's the only entirely student-run homeless shelter in the United States. And, and what I argue in, in my book is that by virtue of having a homeless shelter that's entirely managed and operated by emerging adults, there are some there are some power there are some powerful benefits that um, that the homeless men and women staying at the shelter um, reap from this, from this management structure.
0: So the shelter's been in operation for 26 years. Have you been able to track a sort of generational shift in the way the volunteers conceptualize public service?
1: That was one of the most interesting aspects of, of the study that led to this book. Because it, 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 as part of this study, I was interviewing uh, folks who had inter- had stu- folks who had volunteered at this homeless shelter over the past 26 years, so some who are volunteering right now as contemporary college students, but some who are in their you know who are in their mid 40s now and had volunteered in the in the early night in the early and mid 1980s, and and one of the really interesting differences was the way in which they thought about this community service that they were doing. And so, to give you an example, a number a good portion of the folks in the early and mid 1980s who 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 were involved in the start of the shelter really thought about this work in relation to um, in relation to civil disobedience, um, this idea that that the federal government was not playing you know an appropriate role in in combating homelessness, and that as a result um, they were going to take on this role themselves. And in fact, the shelter did not have you know permission from the city of Cambridge to to open as a shelter in 1983 when it opened. And and the students involved in the starting of the shelter were very were very aware of that, and very you know and and arguably and arguably you know, proud about that, you know, and and I think that their ideas about the kind of shelter they wanted to run were very influenced by by the Catholic Workers Movement, by the idea of creating um, a just community in the basement, in this basement homeless shelter. Whereas now, what's very interesting is that when I talk to the students who are involved in the shelter now, they think about their service very much in relation to, to this idea of social enterprise, which is this, this idea of sort of taking market-based principles and applying it to social service work. And so, for instance, the, the students who are involved in the shelter were, are, were very interested in me doing a study of their homeless shelter because they were very interested in, in, in some empirical research helping them think about what they were doing well, what they were not doing well. One of, the, one of the really interesting programs that this current batch of students started is this, is this program called Street Team, where they send three or four college students out every night into Harvard Square to, to give sandwiches to, to, to homeless folks who are not in the shelter and to encourage folks who are sleeping out on the streets to consider coming inside. And what was really interesting to me is that the street team, the students involved in the street team, were keeping meticulous records about the number of conversations they had, the number of sandwiches they distributed. They were, they were very interested in putting together a handbook for future generations of street team workers. And, and so it was very interesting to see them applying a very market-based approach to, to community service, which, which was very different than the way in which the, the alumni that I interviewed, the folks who had volunteered in the past, talked about their work.
0: It seems like quantitative assessment is important to the students, but specific to the shelter but also in general with service, how often is the community reaction to the privileged helpers negative, a sort of aversion to the white knight swooping in to save them from their own despair?
1: I think that's a, a legitimate concern, and, and it's, I wouldn't want anyone reading my book to think that I'm advocating that all homeless shelters be turned over to college students, you know, because there was clearly a percentage of, of homeless folks that I talked to who had no interest in staying at the Harvard Square homeless shelter because they didn't, they didn't want to be interacting with college students. They wanted to be interacting with professionals, and in fact, one of the, one of the really interesting stories that I heard um, from one of the students volunteering at the shelter was, was one night— a a, um, a Girl Scout troop had volunteered to to help out at the shelter. And so a you know a Den mother had come with three or four nine-year-old, nine-year-old Girl Scouts. And and one of the homeless women staying at the shelter really lashed out at the Den mother saying, you know, this isn't a zoo. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to, to be a learning experience for for small children. And and I thought that was a very legitimate point. And actually the college students running the shelter thought that was a very legitimate point. And and going forward, they they wouldn't they wouldn't allow such small such such small children to 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 volunteer at the shelter. On the flip side, I think that's what's really amazing about the Harvard Square Shelter is is that the Harvard Square shelter, maybe more than a typical homeless shelter, offers a very symbiotic experience for the homeless men and women staying there. And by that I mean that when you you know when you go to a homeless shelter as as a homeless you know, as a homeless adult? You know, you're receiving shelter. You're receiving food. You're receiving various types of support, and, and that's the case at the Harvard Square homeless shelter. But what's interesting is that by virtue of it being run by college students, the, the homeless men and women who are men and women who are staying at the shelter, they also have the opportunity to play a role in the education of these of these college students who are volunteering there. And you know, and certainly there are some homeless men and women who have no interest in playing that role, and they they just go about their they just go about their time in the shelter, but. A very high percentage of the homeless men and women who stay at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter, because they know what they're getting into, really relish the opportunity to talk a little bit about their experiences, both as homeless people and as and as just adults who have, you know, who have lived lived ordinary lives and interesting lives. And and they see and and many of them see themselves as as playing a mentoring role or even a teaching role um, in the lives of these of these idealistic 18 and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds. Who are very, very, who are there really to, you know, to help out, but also to learn, and, and I think that that symbiosis is is a real part of what makes the, the Harvard Square homeless shelter an interesting place.
0: How does this very unique symbiotic relationship? How is it best developed and cultivated?
1: That's a great question, and I think for the for the students involved, you know, the, the important the important idea for them to keep in mind is the idea of sincerity. You know the homeless people who are staying at the Harvard homeless shelter are are people who are people who like college students for the same reason that all of us like you know that the rest of us like college students because they're idealistic because they're open-hearted because they're enthusiastic and so I don't think that I don't think that the Harvard that the Harvard students involved with this shelter need to need to do anything but be themselves um, and so as a so as a result you know I think that in in kind of preparing them to you know to to do their work at this homeless shelter i think it's fair enough that the that the students who are who are involved in leadership roles they'll tell they'll tell the the new volunteers you know don't bring a coach bag into the shelter don't you know you know don't show up in a tuxedo you know which which is which is hopefully fairly obvious but at the same time i don't think that that the students volunteering there need to hide the fact that they might be going to Florida for spring break or or hide the fact that they're taking this microeconomics class that they're really excited about because because in the same way that that the rest of us feed off the energy and idealism of college students the homeless men and women who've who have made the decision that the harvard's core homeless shelter is a place that that's that makes sense for them for this particular night they're they're by and large interested in having those conversations like they they want to hear what these students are studying in class and they want to hear what they're what they're excited to do with their lives, and to and to offer their own thoughts about you know about those ideas.
0: So, to the homeless people, is it important that the shelter is entirely run by students?
1: I think one of the things about the Harvard Square homeless shelter that really appeals to the homeless men and women who make the decision to stay there. Is that they're in a homeless shelter where they're not treated as problems to be fixed, um, and that's frankly because the students don't have the professional skill set to be fixers. You know, they're not social workers, they're not professional caseworkers. So really, what they can offer is is a more family-style atmosphere, you know, a more friendly environment, and and clearly there are a number of you know, there's a no, there's a high percentage of the homeless population that is seeking out those professional services, and they and they really have to seek out those services elsewhere but i think that for some homeless men and women it feels like a very nice respite to to spend a night somewhere where where they're where they're not treated as 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 problems to be fixed where they're not treated as statistics um and i also think as as i said before that that the fact that the harvard students running the shelter are students can be really empowering for the homeless adults it's 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 in our society it's societally appropriate for older folks to serve as mentors to younger folks and and i think that you really to a surprising degree see that dynamic playing out in the shelter you know the 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 Harvard students running the shelter are responsible for cooking a meal for for thirty people every night, and and many of them have very little experience cooking. And you know, and for instance, quite a number of of the homeless men and women who stay at the shelter have some experience in the food services industry, or just have experience cooking, and and they can offer advice, and they can offer tips, and and so it can be as as simple as that, or or as or as or as nuanced nuanced as as a homeless man or woman sitting down with a student and saying, here are some of the mistakes that I've made in my life, you know hear mistakes to avoid. And I think that 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 opportunity, you know, that opportunity for 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 some of the homeless men and women who stay at the shelter is a is a really powerful one because I think that many of us many of us would characterize the homeless as as one of the more invisible populations. And and I think that at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter you have the opportunity to not be invisible.
0: In the book you interview Stuart Guernsey an early volunteer in the 80s and he says we had some very odd dinners. We started shopping at the food bank, which got odds and ends at different times. So I remember we ran through a string one January of frozen pheasant. We got to the point where the homeless people would come in and say, oh, not pheasant. What were some of your favorite stories, Dr. Sider?
1: One involves this, this young man named Lex, who was a 19-year-old from, from the Ivory Coast who had immigrated to the United States and, and after, after a period of time found himself homeless and found himself in the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter. Now, now Lex had graduated from high school um, and, and had some college aspirations and, and mentioned this to, to some of the Harvard students that he met at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter. And, and one of the things that makes me smile is that if there's one thing that, that Harvard students know about, it's the college admissions process. And so when when a number of the students heard that Lex had this aspiration, they, they jumped right into action. And so one of them started tutoring Lex on the ACTs, and others started tutoring Lex on the SATs. Uh, a third student was helping lex with his college applications a fourth student bought him a suit with sh- with shelter funding to prepare for college interviews and 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 in fact when when it came time to 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 write the to, to send in the applications because lex was homeless he listed his address as one of the the dorm mailboxes of of one of the students at the harvard square homeless shelter and and a few months later lex started getting getting responses from you know from universities to which he'd applied and, and to his great excitement and to the great excitement of, of the students who had supported him, he, he was not only accepted to Hamilton College in upstate New York, but he received a full scholarship. And, and, and to kind of finish off the story, the students, you know, who had, who had really played a significant role in, in, in shepherding him through this admissions process, rented a van um, and helped him drive, you know, drive down to, down to um, Clinton, New York, uh, and move into to Hamilton College. And, and it's really... It's really a fabulous story in the sense that it gives you a real sense of what the the optimism and idealism and energy of emerging adulthood can can offer to um, to a particular individual uh, at the Harvard Square homeless shelter. And clearly, clearly, Lex was a special individual already, in that you know, in that he was able to, you know, he was able to to, play a, to make, help make these things happen. But, but I do think that this, the Harvard students played a significant role there. So that's, that's one of my favorite stories.
0: What, a, what an incredible story of community coming together. You describe the shelter as the Cadillac of homeless shelters. It's backed by Harvard, a church, the community, and truly history. What's some advice to those who may be volunteering or running the Ford Pinto or Yugo of homeless shelters?
1: So I actually think what makes the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter a Cadillac of homeless shelters, and I took that phrase from one of the homeless men who was staying at the shelter. He he described the homeless shelter to me as the Cadillac of homeless shelters. But but I think what makes it a Cadillac is not financial. You know, the, the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter is located in the basement of um of a church. And and it's and while it's you know, while it's clean and, and neat, it's also, you know, as many basements are, it's also dark and you know, not you know, not particular not not a lot of natural light and so on and so forth. And the shelter the shelter runs five months a year on a forty thousand dollar budget. They they pay rent to the church for that basement space. They they do get leftover meals from Harvard's dining halls, but um, but that's really the only financial stake that Harvard has in the in the running of the shelter. And so I think that what that what that homeless man was referring to and what a number of other of the of the homeless men and women I interviewed were referring to in, in praising the shelter was was that what makes the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter a Cadillac is that it's a place where a generally invisible group of people feel respected and heard. And you know, and again, there are many, many services that that college students are not able to provide the homeless. And and it would be absurd for me to suggest that that you know homeless shelters should be turned over to college students. But I do think the fact that what college students can bring to to the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter is this. Tremendous enthusiasm this tremendous idealism this tremendous desire to listen to to the men and women they encounter there And you know, and it's interesting. They're not just patient listeners, right? Because you can find patient listeners in In many in, in many homeless shelters They're enthusiastic listeners, you know, meaning that that they're getting something out of that experience, too And they know it they're not they're not listening to a story that that they've heard a thousand times before they're really they're really taking in all this information during a very formative developmental period and, and the homeless men and women who are telling the stories, they're picking up on that. Like They're realizing that they're not, they're not being treated as clients in a therapy session, but they're being treated as, as mentors who have something to offer. And I think, I think it's that moment more than anything that, that makes the Harvard Square homeless shelter the Cadillac of homeless shelters.
0: Dr. Seider, for you personally, of all the dissertation topics in all the fields in education, for you, why service, civics, and youth?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I, I graduated from Harvard College in 1999. I was an English major, and I had gotten my teaching certification through through the Harvard Ed School's undergraduate teacher education program. And I found myself teaching the next year in in an affluent suburban public high school. And, and in thinking about those students that I was working with who were coming from fairly affluent families and were attending a, a well-resourced high school, what became clear to me was that the majority of my students were gonna go on to college and, and were, going to, were going to be economically successful moving forward. And what I was worried about in relation to their, to their development was, was their, their thinking about their civic responsibilities and their thinking about what it meant to be a citizen in the United States, to be a citizen of the world, and, and how they thought about their responsibilities to, to men, women, and children, both in the United States and across the world, who had been born with less privilege. And, and so I started thinking about ways as a public school teacher that, that I could try to have some influence upon upon their s- sense of civic responsibility. And when, and when the time came for me to go back to graduate school and pursue my doctorate, I decided that what I was really interested in thinking more about and writing more about was, was that process of the development of civic responsibility.
0: It is quite a noble pursuit. If you're interested in the book, it's called Shelter, Where Harvard Meets the Homeless. Dr. Cider, where might people be able to pick this up?
1: The book is being published by Continuum, and so you can certainly find, find access to the book on the Continuum publishing website, but you can also find it at Barnes & Noble, Borders, Amazon.com, and, and other places where, where books are sold.
0: Wonderful. It's a great read. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Cider.
1: Thank you. A pleasure to be here.
0: You have truly served our listeners, pun intended. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.